reality to lean into. We have a great high priest whose name is love, and he intercedes for us before the throne of God. What a wonderful thing. We are dismissing children for Children's Church, and you can follow Mr. Kevin Wenzel out this north door in that cool salmon-colored t-shirt. And so kids ages four through first grade, you can make your way on out for Children's Church. A couple quick things before I dive into the message. Uh, men, we are starting the Men in the Mirror uh, study this Wednesday. There are books in the office if you want to pick one up. So we'd love to have you be a part of that. And uh, that's starting at 7 p.m. on Wednesday here at the church. Second of all, I want to say uh, I so appreciate our elders wanting to lead our church even in family matters of, of finances. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's an inconvenient thing, but yesterday we had our men's uh, breakfast, and we talked about taking responsibility. And, you know, the, the thought is, hey, if you're part of the Church of God, especially here at Berean, we all have a part to play as far as taking responsibility, and finances are part of that. But, uh, you know, we're trying to be transparent, and we're trying to be healthy as we can as a church, and invest our treasure in the kingdom of God. So we have that privilege. What a wonderful thing. So it was winter break in Northern California, and eight high school young men went up to the Tahoe area, the Sierra Nevada, to go skiing at the Heavenly Valley Skiing Resort. And one of the young men, their family had a cabin right near the resort, so accessible that at the end of the day, you could your last run, you could ski right up to the entrance of the cabin. What a wonderful opportunity to spend the day skiing and then come back to a, a nice lodge. Well, all the guys at the end of the day were coming back, and then one of the last to return was a, a young man named Mark, a sophomore who was as large as any senior at his high school, coming back boisterous, cutting it up with his buddies, talking about what happened during the day. And one of them says, hey, dude, you're wearing your snow boots into the cabin. You're getting all over the place. And he just kind of, yeah, whatever, just kind of brushed it off. And another goes, no, no, seriously. You're tracking water and mud and scuffing up the floor with your boots. How about going to the door and taking them off? At that part, Mark knew he was kind of called out publicly. And his ego got involved. So well, what about it? What, what are you going to do about it? And one of the guys says, if you don't take him off, we're going to plant your tail in a snowbank outside. And Mark, being a larger kid, said, I'd like to see you try. And what ensued was six young men gathering around this one individual, one getting the door, and him getting planted in the snowbank. That's kind of yucky, isn't it? It's supposed to be a fun snow trip together, skiing. And we tossed one of our buddies out the door. Mark had been a jerk. He'd been inconsiderate. He'd been stubborn. He let his ego lead him. And in conflict, the guys tossed him out. But now what? Now what? It's getting colder outside. 
It's not Minnesota cold, but it's getting cold. And he has nowhere to go. He doesn't have a car. And he is their friend. What are they going to do about it? Some said, well, hey, he made his bed. He's going to lie in it outside in the snow. Others said, no. (laughs) He's learned his lesson. If he's willing to take his boots off, let's bring him in. Now, you'll be relieved to know this is actually a fictitious story. It didn't actually happen. But it is a good illustration. And this type of thing can happen in the church family. Sin unchecked can create a rift, injury, and division among believers. And as I said, this opening illustration mirrors what actually happened in the church in Corinth. We've been continuing in our series through 2 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, you may want to open them up to chapter number 2. And a couple weeks back, we saw that the church had suspicious thoughts and even mistrusted their planting pastor, Paul, because he had made changes in his plans to visit them without consulting them. They wondered about his care for them. They wondered about his actual message of Christ because he delayed. But what we find out is that Paul had delivered a tough love letter, a message encouraging them to deal with some sinful behavior that was being destructive to the church. It was creating a rift in their midst. His message was faithful, although it was wounding. But that's what kept Paul from visiting them. Well, as we continue on, we're going to find out that they actually took action with the one who had caused the offense. But the question is, now what? Now what? So let's read the first few, uh, first 11 verses of the second chapter, and then we'll dive into what God wants to say to us through his word today. Verse 1, chapter 2, 2 Corinthians. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. This is Paul. For if I grieve you, who, left, who is left to make me glad, but you whom I have grieved, I wrote as I did, so that when I come, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, and to some extent not to put it too too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Let's pray, and then we'll dig into this interesting passage. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have come to seek 
and save the lost. And that is us. Thank you that you came to make reconciliation between us and a holy God. And you also came to bring reconciliation between us, sinful men and women, between brother and sister. So would you help us to see what you have for us in this word today and guide us into action that pleases you. Help us to take responsibility for all that you've called us to do and to do so in faith, knowing that you want to do it in us and through us. So Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. So a couple weeks back, if you had the opportunity to be out at the God Loves You tour, Franklin Graham got to the stage. And the first thing he said is, sin separates us from a holy God. And that's not new to us who've been in the church, but it's true. Between a perfect and holy God, when we sin, there is a separation. And we're going to talk more about what God's solution is to that a little bit later. But if there's a separation between us and a holy God, how much more between us who don't always act so righteously, so holy, so perfectly? First point here is that sin unchecked creates a rift in the body of Christ. In this particular case, with the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians, it was some sort of continual sin that the church had allowed to persist. It was cancerous for all, including the perpetrator, as well as for Paul. And Paul thought he had dealt with this in his first letter to the Corinthians in sending Timothy. You can read about that in chapter 4, verse 17. But that didn't seem to remedy the situation. So he sends another letter rebuking them, which we do not have. We'll read about that in chapter 7. But this is what has kept him from coming, from visiting. He doesn't want to enter into this painful conflict. He wants them to respond in obedience. And he says, So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved. I wrote you as I did, so that when I come, I would not be distressed by those who I should have made, who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you should share in my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Can you just hear Paul's heart? in this statement? It's hard stuff, right? Look, I'm not, I, I don't want to make a painful visit to you. I don't want to grieve you. In fact, really what I want to do is share in my, I want you to share in my joy about what God is doing. And when I wrote you, I wrote you out of great anguish of heart, yes. Because of life circumstances that were taking place in chapter 1, verse 8, but also out of deep love for you. There's something between us, and it breaks my heart. And I don't want to aggravate that. That's why I've held back. You see Paul's pastoral heart. There was a rift. But now we find out that they've addressed this issue. 
we read the rest of, of this chapter. And we don't know what the actual offense was. Okay? In, in the first letter to Corinthians, the Corinthians in chapter 5, we find out that there is a man who is sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother. This is kind of yucky. It's causing a rift. And we're not sure if this is the exact scenario that Paul is talking about, but how it's being dealt with is exactly how Paul instructs them to deal with it. And here's something I also want to say. This type of passage actually gives me more confidence in the Scriptures. Because, you know, if this were just man's creation, the picture would be much more rosy. Who wants to talk about a man who's having an affair with his stepmom? If you're trying to create something that's attractive, you're not going to talk about these things. But if we're talking about a God who is seeking to reconcile sinful men and women to himself, even when the ugliest stuff comes to bear, then this is actually hopeful, even though the situation itself is ugly. So again, we don't know if this is the actual situation. But on the other hand, you kind of go, how can anyone think that this is okay? I mean, Paul says, you know, not even the pagans are doing this. And you're allowing it. And maybe someone was deceived by the enemy as far as what Christ came to do. You see, Jesus didn't come to set us free to sin. Jesus came to set us free from sin to change our nature, to change how we respond to these things. Again, we're not sure. But what we see happens is that the church enacted church discipline. And we see that Jesus teaching about this in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother or sister sins, go point out their fault just between you two. It's okay. You know, I'm going to guard your reputation. I'm going to come talk to you privately. If they listen to you, they have won, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take two others along, one or two others along, so that the, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Let's make sure we have all the facts straight, okay? Got a few other people here involved, so we, we know what's going on, right? If they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to even listen to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And the end result here is withholding of fellowship. Those who refuse to repent from their destructive behavior, there's a pulling back of fellowship, a pulling back of community. And maybe we don't see it as severely here in Rochester because we've got multiple, multiple churches so people can just leave one church and go on to another. But in Corinth, there was only one church at this point. And so that lack of fellowship, that lack of community was being felt. It's kind of like being tossed out into the snowbank, isn't it? You know, a few weeks back, about three weeks back, we had David Hunter here the new director of Minnesota Adult Teen Challenge, and he shared his life with us, his faith journey. And by the way, what I'm going to share with you, I asked permission, so I'm not, I'm not uh, taking, things, uh, taking liberties that he has not given me permission to. But at one point, you know, in his 
struggle with addiction. And he would even say he had made a profession of faith to follow Christ at this point. He was so entangled in his addiction and bringing destruction to himself and his family that he got locked out of his house. His wife left him, serving him divorce papers. Like, this can't continue. You're hurting us, you're hurting yourself, and I'm not going to participate in it. And that was a wake-up call for David. In a way, that was a bit of a microcosm of church discipline. And at first, he was just angry, said, I'm all, I'll show you. But then, finally coming to the end of himself and saying, you know what, you're right, I need to surrender to Jesus. I need, I need all the help I can get. And if you know the story, it's a beautiful story of restoration. As he surrendered, and even surrendered his marriage, to the point of saying, Jesus, even if you do not restore my marriage, I will still follow you. And then God restored his marriage. And now look what he's done in bringing David to lead other broken people in those areas. The, the comment here in Jesus says is, treat them as you would a pagan and a tax collector. Again, there is that withholding of fellowship, but that's actually a really hopeful statement. Who did Jesus pursue? Pagans and tax collectors. Jesus is always inviting the lost to come home. The door is always open. To be certain that the purpose of church discipline is not to inflict punishment. It's not to take a pound of flesh. Rather, it's to compel a person from withholding fellowship, and it is painful for everybody. But to stop, to turn around, and even to ask for help if they are stuck in their sin. But I am stuck. I need help. I need people to come alongside of me within this, in this destructive behavior and return to Christ, return to His family. That is the purpose of church discipline. It's not to shame anyone. It's not to, again, beat them up or take a pound of flesh. But when you have been the one who's caused a lot of pain and hurt to others, returning is not so easy. And those who are hurt are sometimes not so quick to open the door to forgiveness. They're not sure they want restoration. It's easier to kind of keep those persons, kind of what I say, in the doghouse, if you will. So Paul, at the very outset, has been the one who has been the leader to say, hey, we need to confront this sin. We need to deal with this sin. He's taken the lead in church discipline. Now he's taking the lead in restoration for this young church. See, sin perpetually punished causes a rift in the body of Christ as well. Verse 5, If anyone, anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. 
It seems that church discipline has done its work here. Discipline through withholding fellowship. It seems to have brought this person back to a place of repentance. And I don't think Paul would, would uh, you know, recommend this reconciliation if this person were still willfully sinning and continuing in, in his, his or her behavior. But now what? Now what? Starting with verse 7, forgive him. Forgive him. No longer holding the offense toward that person. And I know that is easier said than done. It's easier said than done. And we're going to talk a little bit about where the power to forgive even comes from. But quit holding the offense toward this person. Number two, comfort this person. Because this person has a sense of grief of what he or she has done. And grief for what they have lost. And it's interesting how this whole letter starts out addressing, telling people about the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our suffering. It's a place where they can come and find comfort that there is a way back to restoration. There is a way for you to experience forgiveness. And that for all the maybe horrible stuff that you've done, and it is horrible, you can still be forgiven. You can still be restored. It's not beyond God's forgiveness. It's not beyond His grace. It's the promise of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful. He is just because He paid His justice to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's what's going on. And then number three, to reaffirm your love for this, pe- this person because they feel a sense of shame, of embarrassment, of being unworthy, of even out of place. No, you are welcome back into the family, my brother, my sister. And they need Jesus with skin on to welcome them back, to be the hands and feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I guess that asks the question, how about you? How about me? Are there people we're keeping in our doghouse? They have hurt us. They've hurt the church. And uh, yet they have apologized. They have repented. And we're still keeping them at arm's length. We're still saying, mm, no, I'm not sure I'm going to let you back in the house. And there are reasons for that. There are good reasons for that. Sometimes it's self-protection. If they have violated your trust, you're kind of going, hey, really? Are, are you just saying the right things to you know, get back in our good graces? And so I trust you again, and then you're going to you know, d- disappoint me again. The bridge of trust is, takes a long time to be rebuilt. So I think it's okay to be cautious in opening the, you know, the welcome gates completely open. And maybe you know, that trust will never be fully, fully rebuilt, but there needs to be some sort of, of acceptance there, if it's, especially if they're really sincere in their repentance and really seeking to try to, uh, to get back on their feet. Also, the issue of self-righteousness. 
Do we think what they did, that's just horrible. I could never do that. I could never do X, Y, or Z. And maybe so. Or maybe not. Maybe you're overestimating your own moral fiber. But we all have to come to grips with the fact that each one of us is more capable of doing destructive, sinful things than we know. And even admit to ourselves. And that sin is always crouching at our door. I'm going to tell you, I'm so grateful for what God did in David Hunter's life. Sin and temptation are still crouching at his door. He has to choose to follow Christ every day, as does this pastor, as do you. Our fight against sin will never end until Jesus takes us home. So let's not get too uh, in love with our own believing in our our own self-righteousness. And have we forgotten the very nature of the gospel? That you and I are loved and forgiven and accepted by God by grace alone, through faith alone, and what Christ has done. That is the very nature of the gospel. And that needs to pervade not only in our understanding of the salvation that we receive, but in our relationships with each other. Tell them I'll call them later. And maybe we don't have a, a church discipline situation where, you know, we're shunning relationship, but you know how we kind of perpetually punish people? And you know where this happens? This actually happens in those who are closest to us. It's kind of bringing up past failures. We get in a fight with our spouse. Say, Honey, you left my tools out in the rain. Yeah, well, you forgot our anniversary last year, right? We perpetually bring back past injuries, and we use it to punish each other, or even to keep ourselves, you know, above the the person. You know, I think probably one of the biggest challenges, I don't mean to use David as my, my straw man today, but... You know, when he came back for Melissa to let him back in the house and trust him and let him lead. It would be very easy for her to say, uh-uh, you did this. We're not, we're not going there until you have earned it. When has he earned it? We don't know, right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse, at the end of verse 5, says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Are we perpetually bringing back a person's past faults just to deflect from our own failure. That doesn't mean we don't confront sin, but we are aware of our own sinfulness as well. So if confrontation of sin has done its work through church discipline, let's not keep reconfronting this failure. But again, it was this original issue of not confronting sin that brought these things to Paul's attention. Open, blatant sin and disobedience to Christ that was being ignored and winked at. Why? Because it's hard. It's yucky. It's, you know, even as a pastor, I don't like to bring up someone's sinful stuff. 
because I got my own stuff. Right? It's uncomfortable. You, can, you fear being accused of being judgmental or a hypocrite or a legalist. You know, we all got to check our own eyes to see if there's a log there when we're trying to remove the speck. We're, we don't like conflict. I don't like conflict. But listen to this. Obedience in confronting unchecked sin demonstrates a Christ-first allegiance. Obedience in confronting unchecked sin demonstrates a Christ-first allegiance. Verse 9. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. At the end of the day, the Apostle Paul was not calling the Corinthians to obey himself to demonstrate his apostolic power, but to obey Christ, of whom they were his bride. And unfaithfulness was taking place. The Corinthians had hesitated to deal with these things. Maybe they feared each other. Maybe they didn't want to make waves. Maybe they feared losing relationships or friendships. But at the end of the day, Christ is calling to an allegiance to Him first. He demands to be our first love. In fact, this is what He says in Luke chapter 14, 26-27. If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be My disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow Me cannot be My disciple. I think we all understand that Jesus is not calling us to hate our family members and our close ones. He's saying, I need to be first. I need to be the first person of allegiance. And that even in relation to your own comfort and your own will. I need to be first. And I'm reminded by someone in the room that there are many brothers and sisters around this world who are paying that price, have lost their families even, for following Christ, because they're saying, Jesus is my first allegiance. He is my Savior. He is my God. And I have more life in Him than even in my family members. But they have paid the price. And if this is true in our earthly families, it is true in God's family. Jesus has to have first allegiance. Paul was calling them to follow Jesus as their first love. And just an Old Testament saying out of Proverbs 29-25, The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is kept safe. Jesus has to be our first allegiance. But getting back to the whole issue of church discipline, let's remember that the purpose is not being punitive. It's the goal of helping people be repentant, reconciled, and be restored. And because, listen to this, it's the goal of the enemy, of Satan, to create division, separation, alienation between us and a holy God and between each other. We have to be aware of that. So forgiveness of sin in Jesus' name is the remedy against Satan's schemes. Because that's what he's trying to do among us. Trying to create division. Verse 10. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. 
for we are not unaware of his schemes. Again, Paul realizes he is Jesus sent one to this, to this church. But he's not claiming to be the, the forgiveness dispenser. What he's claiming is he is holding out, excuse me, rather he used to say as far as the rift in the Corinthian church, he's not going to hold up forgiveness, he's not going to hold up the forgiveness restoration process by them waiting for him to arrive. Saying, don't wait for me to show up and issue forgiveness in Jesus' name. You guys can do that. If you've forgiven him, I'm on board with you. At the end of the day, Jesus is the source of any forgiveness we receive from God, and he is the source of the basis from which we forgive one another. He says, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. It really mirrors the the reality Jesus, I mean, excuse me, the Apostle Paul would bring forth in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. This is why Paul is calling for forgiveness and love, even of this chastened brother and sister. Because Satan's desire is to separate. He seeks to come, kill, steal, and destroy. And that's not the calling card of our, of our Savior. Jesus says, look, people will know that you're my disciples, and that you have love for one another. And that might mean working things out when you have conflict or sin there. The Lord came to save us. He came to bridge the gap between us, sinful men and women, and a holy God. Let me ask you, do you know that Savior? Has that conflict between you and a holy God been bridged by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? It really is good news that God sent His Son to live a life of perfect obedience you and I couldn't live. To pay a penalty for our sin by going to the cross. A penalty you and I couldn't pay to rise from the dead and conquer a foe and give life that we don't have in ourselves. That is what he offers. That's how the penalty of sin, our failure, bridges that gap between us and the Holy God. A little later in this same letter, Paul's going to say, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's how he's bridged that gap. What an amazing thing. But he's also come to bridge the gap between you and I. That if I offend you, that if you hurt me, we can be reconciled to one another. We can give forgiveness to each other because of the forgiveness that we've received. We can be kind and love one another. Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Instead of when you hit me, I hit you back twice. Because that's the way of the world. And that creates division. That's the scheme of the enemy among us. And Christ wants to do something different within us. That we be God's reconciled people to himself and to one another. To make people who are naturally enemies brothers and sisters.
That's an amazing thing that God wants to do in our midst. So, sin unchecked needs to be confronted because it can breed all sorts of unhealth in the body. But sin repented of must be forgiven. Because a watchful world is looking for evidence of a God who can bring forgiveness, reconciliation, and take something that is broken and bring life to it. This is what the Apostle Paul was saying to the Corinthians, and I think that's what God is saying to us. So the Lord give us grace. Pastor Nathan preached too long. Would you stand?